0: evening. Good to see everyone out. You know, as you can probably tell, a lot of times when I give a scripture reading, I rarely ever reference it uh, in the sermon. And the reason for that is because, well, we just read it, and I just want you to think about it for a second. And what I want you to think about for a second is we could have picked any of the churches in Revelation 2 or 3, and which are addressed, and which... The Lord says, tell this church, this is what I have against them. Or tell this church, this is what is going good for them. And I picked this one because this church had a name that it was alive, but Jesus said it's dead. And there are other times where we might think of a church and we think that it is dead, but yet it is alive. Because guess what we are? We're humans. Guess what we don't know? Thoughts, hearts, intentions. We can't know that, right? But we're all individuals. And all of us as individuals, we have what we think is our church's biggest problem. We all do. And for one, it's this. For one, it's this. For another, it's this. And another, it's this. I bet if I handed you an index card... And I said, write down our biggest problem. We would have several that would be this. We'd have several that would be this. And then we'd have some ones be like, really? That's what you think is the biggest problem. Let me tell you why I bring this up. I was out running on July the 4th, 2016. That's this year, right? So it's early morning because it's going to be a super hot day. And I'm running with my running partner who is not a Christian. And we just finished our nine-and-a-half-mile run, and we finish up right here, right outside the Glen Ridge High School on Ridgewood Ave. And I'm huffing and puffing because we just ran up a hill, and I see someone walking across the street that is looking kind of very intently at me, wearing a full-brimmed hat, and I can't really see who it is, but I can tell that they're walking over to either my running partner or myself. As the person gets closer, I said, oh, I know who this is. And here's what the person said to me. I'm not coming to your church anymore because they talk too much. How many of you, that would have been on your number one list, they talk too much? It wasn't on mine. But guess what happened that day? My running partner, who is not a Christian, hears they talk too much. How well you think that went over? He and I have been talking about it regularly over the last little bit. And I was like, we got to deal with it. we got to talk about it. And that is an interesting thing, isn't it? And what we're going to talk about tonight is that as human beings, we have a tendency to talk too much. That's just all there is to it. That's our natural tendency. We're going to see the result of talking too much. How bad it really is. It's not something that's small. It really is a big deal. And then we're going to look at three biblical examples if we have time. Where we're going to ask the question, was that too much? Was that too much information that was said that would be borderline on this too much talking? So if you're open there in Colossians, the third chapter, I can't remember if I told you to open up there or not, but if not, go to Colossians, the third chapter. And you remember in Colossians, the third chapter, it's one of those put off the old man and put on the new man passages, right? Same thing with Ephesians 4, and we're going to see it in both passages. But what we just see is that the tendency to talk too much is us. I don't know many people who are good at keeping their mouth shut. Except for people who just don't open it to begin with. But those of us who like to talk, our mouths easily run off. We easily talk. And notice that that is part of this man of the earth. You notice in verse 5 there, Put to death those things that are earthly in your members. But now notice verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath. Malice, and here's our word, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. When we think about this word slander, we don't use that very much, and we'll see it actually in the next one, but this is our word for blaspheme. And we know that word a lot more, don't we? Jesus would make Himself out to be the Son of God, and they say, You blaspheme. You're talking against that. You are not God. And so if we define that as it's used in the New Testament, it's some slanderous speech. It's some speech that's done to cause somewhat of an injury. It's not anything that is said to build anyone up or to improve someone, but it is speech that is given in order to talk bad about someone. I've done it. I imagine all of us would be guilty of doing that, right? And I think about that from time to time as we think about being blasphemous. We don't think about that in relation to people. We think about that in relation to God. How dare you blaspheme against God? Well, yet we've got no problem talking against our brother or our sister in Christ. We've got no problem talking against our neighbor out there. We sure have no problem talking against our boss. And he says, man, you've got to put all that away. You've got to put that out. That is not the new man. That is the old man. Notice how it said in Ephesians the fourth chapter. Flip over there just a couple pages away. And now in Ephesians four, he talks several times about how you speak and how you use your tongue. In verse 25, he tells them to speak truth with one another. But notice at the end, the next to the last verse of verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and here's our word, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why are these people apparently saying these bad things? There seems to be that malice, that intent to do somebody harm, to talk bad about it. I want you to notice another term that used. I want you to go to Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, we have this term that we are going to call slander. And... It's a way in which we use it a little bit in our modern day language. In fact, I was just reading a a news article, a sports article this week, about how a professional baseball player is suing someone who released a video of him for defamation of character. What does it mean to to defame someone? You're trying to knock them down. You're trying to, to not so much injure them as much as you're trying to lower them in one sense or another. So notice that this term that you're going to have translated if you're using the King James is evil speaking, or some translations would be backbiting. I want you to notice a list that it's included in of these people in verse 28 who choose not to acknowledge God. Right? And so we know verse 29. These people, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. That's a bad list of people, isn't it? And notice, maliciousness. They are gossips. And here's our word, thirty slanderers. Followed by haters of God. Is that, is, is that something light? Is that something that is a small thing when you go about and, as the word says, backbiting, where you seem to be going behind somebody and talking about them? Man, that's in a bad list of people. That is serious. But yet, oh man, I'm doing them good. I'm saying what needs to be said. We would often say, "Ah." I have to say this, but we know the difference sometimes if we're trying to tear somebody down. And I'm going to use a third term. We'll come back and talk about these because you would see it here in verse 28, uh, or excuse me, verse 29, the very last term in verse 29 of Romans 1, these gossips or these whisperers. You know what that is? That's a person who tells somebody secrets. They have some privileged information and they cannot or they will not keep it to themselves. So think about that for a second. There's some people talk bad about somebody and they're not really trying to necessarily do that person harm. But yet they're just talking bad about them because maybe what they did or maybe what they are wearing or maybe what their job is or what their hobbies are or whatnot. And what they are saying about them is not necessarily wrong, but guess what it doesn't do? It doesn't build the person up. It doesn't paint them in a positive light. And then we know other times in which you're actually trying to tear somebody down. In which you are attacking them personally. And you are going against them to try to do them harm. And then we absolutely know what it's like. When I've got some juicy information, now let me tell you about it. But sometimes it doesn't come out that way. If it works with me, sometimes I've got some juicy information and I accidentally let that out. It's the same thing. I still told somebody secret. And guess what? That type of talk pushes people away. Because that's not Christian. And so when you have a tendency to do that, and you give over to that, or you never put it away to begin with, the result of that is pretty serious. I want you to notice back in Colossians chapter 3. I skipped over this intentionally, because we said, man, this is a pretty bad list of things, but I want you to notice what you can expect, what is the expectation for someone who doesn't change these things over. If you go back to verse 3 there, and he says put away, or verse 5, excuse me. So then notice verse 6, what he says that these things that you're supposed to put away. On account of these things, guess what? The wrath of God is coming. He's not going to come in and just say, hey, I wish you weren't talking that way. He's going to come in and say, what are you doing? And deal with that. And you'll notice that, and I've got it up here. I forgot that I had it on the board. I want you to notice back in Romans chapter 1. The same thing is said, except for it's said a little more serious. It's not just that the wrath of God is coming. We would see that in verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. But notice what he says as he closes out that list of things at the end that these people deserve to die. As he said, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, disobedient to parents. And you skip down to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know That's the result. But yet, they do them, and they give approval, and I think the New American Standard says they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Again, it's not a slap on the wrist. It is a death sentence for speaking in such a way you deserve to die. That's from God's perspective. I want you to think about it from a practical perspective here. Now, let's imagine as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're like the Galatians. And in chapter 5, we are biting and devouring one another. In verse 23-ish, maybe, what, 14, what, what's the number? Yeah, 13, 14, somewhere in there. We're biting and we're devouring one another. And he says, beware lest you consume one another. So think about that picture for a second you got Christians who are at civil war with one another. They are biting and devouring and eating each other. Is there anything worse than civil war? You look at a nation. You look at an organization. You look at a church. Anything worse than civil war that really comes to mind? I can't think of many things much worse. It's disgusting. It does no good, right? And so we know what the civil war did to this country. What was left? People died. Cities were destroyed. Towns were were left in shambles. Roads were thrown all to pieces because of infighting. And so guess what we did? We devoured one another. Or you go to countries in Africa and you have people with missing limbs because of civil war. It's an ugly picture. And that's the way it was back in the days of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, the ninth chapter, and I want you to turn there, I want you to see a practical side of if we are talking too much, meaning we're slandering our brothers and sisters in Christ, or we're slandering our neighbors, or we are attacking them, or we're telling each other secrets, Right? The result of that is, guess what? We're not going to trust anyone. Why would I tell you anything? Why would I tell her anything? There would be no reason, and that's exactly what God says, don't trust. I want you to go to chapter 9 and verse 4 of Jeremiah where he says, let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Imagine that. None of your brothers can be trusted. Not a single person. How lonely is that life? How miserable is that life? And he says, everyone, verse 5, he deceives his neighbor. And no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression. And they refuse, and deceit upon deceit, and they refuse to know me, declares the whore. They're making it hard on each other by deceiving each other. And notice what he said. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They're saying, okay, now what do I need to say to get this brother this way? Well, you see that down in verse 8. Skip forward to verse 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. Again, notice that. Deadly. Not a wounding, it is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully, and with his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for it. Hey, brother so-and-so. Hey, sister so-and-so. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Man, you won't believe what they were doing. Let me see if I can get this. Man, what a world of mistrust. Would you want to stay in an environment like that? Catch you later, is what I'd be saying. I'll go find me somebody I can trust. And notice how the Lord views a group of people like this, because this is Israel. Notice verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Individuals are responsible for running their mouths, aren't they? But God says, if this is how that group of people is, am I not right in getting vengeance on that? And the answer is, absolutely. So what about a church that talks too much? Does God have the right, Jesus has the right to... Put the candle out to remove the candle from the candlestick? Absolutely. That is how serious this sin is. And I don't have to tell you that. That's not something that you need to be taught about. You know that. We just forget it. Now here's the hard part, and this gets to our last part. Well, did I say too much? Sometimes we have those thoughts after we've opened our mouth, haven't we? How about if we thought about it a little bit beforehand? I want you to think about three biblical examples where I want to ask the question, was too much said? Was that too much? I want you to go to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. This may be the hardest one of them all. And and by the way, I don't have really an answer for any of these three. I have maybe some, some thoughts about them. But I do find it interesting that these particular things are are in Scripture for us. Remember, as Paul begins with the Corinthians, they had written him a letter. And he's writing back to them some things about which they had written him. But he begins the letter not by answering their questions. But he begins the letter by telling them about some things that he's heard. I want you to notice in verse 10... He begins in chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Is that easy to do? Uh-uh. If you ever find a place where everyone agrees, stay. You're trying to find a place like that. But that's my desire, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, no cliques, No separations, no divisions, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. You're all on the same page, going towards the same goal, looking for the same thing. He says that because that's not what they are. Because notice verse 11. For it has been reported to me, declared to me. By Chloe's people, or Chloe's household, that there is quarreling among you brothers. Did Chloe's people say too much? Paul? Again, no idea what they said. But from the conversation, guess what Paul gathered? There were divisions in Corinth. Should they have kept their mouth shut? It doesn't appear as though they should, right? Why not? Because there were problems. There were things that needed to be fixed. And guess what? He was. He was their father in the faith. He founded that congregation. He went to them first, and he would point out, "Man, only baptized of you, Fortunatus and you know the people there, Stephanus uh, and." That's all I baptized there, but yet you're my children. And you're not of Cephas, you're not of Apollos, or of Paul, even though that's what you're saying. And so, do you think, and again, this is mere conjecture, that when Chloe's people told Paul about it, Chloe's people were trying to make Corinth look bad. Man, you won't believe how bad we are over there in Corinth, man. You won't believe how bad brother so-and-so is. Man, he is all I mean, he's all about Apollos. Man, an old brother so-and-so over there, I man. He's all about Cephas. Man, it's all so bad over there. Or do you think maybe he's out of concern? Paul. Maybe Paul asked question how's, how are things going? Well, things are going pretty good, except, man, right now, we got guys that are pinning up against each other. We got groups over here, we got one going here one going there. You're not trying to slander anybody. Maybe he never even mentioned a name. We don't know. But the point would be, what is the intent of telling somebody that there is division in your church? Is it to illustrate a point? Is it to fix the problem? Or is it to make one group look bad, one person look bad? Now I'll tell you what, if it's to make somebody look bad, guess what we've done? We've talked. Too much to build them up, as Ephesians chapter four says. Let it all be done for the upbuilding, brethren. Maybe it's not too much. Let me throw you another scenario. I want you to go to Second Timothy, Paul's last letter to Timothy. Paul's an old man. Paul thinks he's about to die or knows he's about to die. And Paul calls some people out by name. He writes Timothy a letter. says, hey, I'm going to die. And he says in verse 14, that Timothy, you need to remind them, the people of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which doers, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Okay, so let's stop right there for a second. Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to put a stop to all of these quarrels. Because it's not doing the hearers any good. It's only ruining them. Okay? So there's a problem. It's hurting. So go with it. 15. Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy, you take care of yourself. You watch out for yourself. And 16 Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. If Timothy takes this path, what is going to happen? The people, the hearers, will get worse and worse and worse. That's not what you're supposed to do. So notice now the verse 17. And their talk are these people who will get more ungodly. And their talk will spread like gangrene, like cancer. Goes right through. And among them, these people who are irreverently babbling, who are bringing ruin to hearers, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And they have swerved from the truth, saying that there is the resurrection has already happened. And they are upsetting the faith of some. Did Paul say too much to Timothy? Don't be like them. These are people who have caused more harm. They're like cancers. Anybody want cancer? Nope. We ain't signing up for cancer, right? Because we know what cancer does. Cancer kills. And it moves quickly. And you know what's interesting about cancer? Oftentimes it goes undetected until it's too late. Faith has already been upset. He's getting it out there. You watch out for what they say. Look at chapter 4. As he talks about Alexander, the coppersmith in verse 14, he did me great harm. And the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That ain't anything good he's saying about Alexander the coppersmith, is it? He'd be like, man, Alexander the coppersmith is a great coppersmith. Man, you, if you need some copper work, you go to Alexander. He'll get, you, he'll get you a deal. No, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him. But notice the next phrase. Why did I tell you that? Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. If there was somebody who was going to cause you trouble, wouldn't it be in someone's best interest to warn you that, hey, this might happen? You're able to handle that a little better. It's not to necessarily defame them, but in order to achieve the purpose and the goal of the gospel reaching and the message being spread, I need you to be aware of this guy. He is going, probably, to oppose him. We want to know the dangers that lie ahead. It wasn't to ruin Alexander. Everyone already knew that he had opposed the message. Everyone already knew, probably, that he had done him great harm. But i tell you, he mentions them by name, which I personally have trouble doing. That's a hard thing for me to do is mention folks by name. But guess what? Paul's not the only New Testament writer who mentions someone by name. Why don't you go to 3 John as we close out. John writes to Gaius. So maybe here's two interesting things in the letters in which we just read from. The book of Timothy is written to an individual. Timothy, right? Third John is written in verse 1 to Gaius, an individual. But you'll notice in verse 9, as the Apostle John writes, he said, I've written something to the church. Something different. Whether it is a gospel letter or whether it is some letter of recommendation, we do not know. But he said, I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. I wrote to church, but your fees," he said, uh-uh. So notice 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Talking wicked nonsense against us, or yours may say, prating us. And our word here for this wicked nonsense is to utter nonsense. It is to accuse one falsely. There is no merit to what he is saying. And it is against us. He said, I'll bring it up. I will talk about it. I will tell them what he is doing. And by the way, he's not content with just tearing us down and throwing empty accusations against us. He's not content with that. He also refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops those who would want. So these brothers apparently had traveled in that maybe Paul or that John had written and said, hey, these people are from me. Accept them. And Atrophy said, no. Those guys don't know anything. Who are they? And if you dare help those people out, kick your idol out the church. Catch you later. i tell you what. Did John say too much? How do you think the Osterfees would have felt when he got up there and he's talking about it that way? How do you think Hominatus and Philetus felt? Sometimes, guess what? We may think somebody has said too much when they haven't. Other times we may think we haven't said too much And guess what? We have. And that is why it is so vital not to talk too much. Because, man, it is serious and it has to stop. It can't go on. Because of what you can expect if it does go on. The wrath of God. Judgment. Mistrust? If it goes on, you're done. And we need to question when we say something, is it too much? We need to be careful that we are people, as James says, we know it, who are quick to hear and slow to speak because talking too much can run somebody out can tear a church apart and can cause me to lose my own soul. That is just as serious as any other sin you want to throw out there. Don't talk too much. Right? I've said too much. Your subject in any way, why don't you come now as we stand and as we sit.